Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Do the Gospels give you the impression that the Kingdom of God is about to arrive? My guest today is Troy Salinger, who wrote an interesting article called The Postponement of the Kingdom, a Response to Preterists and Anti-Missionary Rabbis. His idea is that the kingdom of God is a political restoration of the kingdom of Israel to one of David's descendants, and that this kingdom could have come during the time of Christ. However, because the Jewish people, especially the leaders, rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God postponed the coming of the kingdom until a later time. Here now is episode 524, Kingdom Postponed, with Troy Salinger. Welcome, Troy Salinger, to Restitutio. So glad to talk with you today. Good to be here. I just want to tell you, it's a real honor for me to be on your podcast. I've been uh, listening to it for about uh, seven years now. Oh. Well, when I first became a Unitarian, I came out of Trinitarianism. I was a Trinitarian for 35 years. Um, and about seven years ago, uh, you know, I came to the Unitarian, uh, biblical Unitarian belief. Uh, your podcast and um, Dale Tuggies, and I found some, uh, I think it was through you, you had a website that uh, had a bunch of audio files on it from all kind of, uh, a lot from Buzzard and um, other biblical Unitarian teachers. Yeah, Christian and I just listened. Com. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it, yeah. And I mean, I just consumed all of that. I listened to many of those things more than twice. <laughs> and uh, I listened to all of your backlog of uh, your, your podcast. And well, I did have another you. podcast it, it really before helped. that, too, called uh, Truth Matters. Okay, yeah. Had you, I, had you heard that one? That's the one I first... Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was a podcast I had that that linked up with a uh, that was broadcasted on a radio station locally, and I think I had uh, twenty or thirty episodes, and pr- pretty much as soon as I questioned the Trinity, they they gave me the axe. <laughs> yeah. No, and no, uh, yeah, typical. that was the precursor to Restitutio. So I don't know if that's yeah. something you would come across or not. Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. But uh, you know, your your show was very helpful to me uh, in that first first year. You know that uh, I came. You know, having no other biblical Unitarian fellowship, I didn't know anybody else who was in this belief. It was very helpful. Yours and Dale Tuggies and, and helping ground me in uh, in this belief. You know, so uh, well, it's a it's an honor for me to be on the podcast. Well, thank you, thank you. If you don't mind me asking, what what got you to start questioning the identity of Christ after did you say thirty five years of being yes, Trinitarian? Yes, thirty five years. Yes. So what what in the world would get you to question that or doubt it? The Bible. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I I had never thought to question it. It wasn't in my mind. You know, like some people start doubting it, and then they go searching online or whatever. They find out things and, you know, they change their mind or whatever. But it, it wasn't like that. I had no thought about questioning it. I was uh, doing a study of the four Gospels, kind of like a chronological study through the Gospels. 
but trying to relate everything back to the Hebrew scriptures. You know, early on in the Gospels, you're confronted with the title Son of God. So I went back to the Hebrew scriptures to see from a Hebraic perspective, what what does that title mean? I mean, I always thought I knew what it meant, right? That that, that refers to the divinity of, of Christ. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people. But when I went, impression. yeah. <laughs> but when I did a study and, and went back to the Hebrew scriptures, I was very shocked and surprised with with, with what I found. I'm sure I'd read these scriptures before, but it just never clicked in my mind. But Basically, you know, I discovered that Son of God was the title for the Davidic king. And then carrying that over into like Luke 1, where the angel tells Mary, you know, she's going to have a son and he's going to be the son of the living God. And God is going to give him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. It just blew my mind, you know. And so at that point, I, I knew I couldn't believe anymore in, in this eternally begotten Son of God, that that's not what the Scripture was about. I realized that that was just something that had developed from early church fathers. But, you know, I was still, I, I still wasn't questioning the Trinity or anything. I still didn't think of Jesus as simply a human. But I knew that Son of God didn't mean, didn't have to do with his divinity. It had to do with his kingship. And I, I was kind of confused for a couple of weeks about who, how to think about Jesus, you know. And I remember just asking the Father, "Is God, you got to show me? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know how to think about your Son anymore, you know." After you know, really praying that one day, uh, I was looking online. I was trying to find some something about Colossians one, trying to find somebody who had the same perspective as I did. I didn't even know about biblical Unitarianism. Yeah, you didn't even know the terminology. Never even heard yet. of it. Yeah. Right. And I came across uh, Buzzard's website, and he and I think it was Dan Gill were having a discussion on Colossians 1. And they were talking about that Jesus was a, a man, simply a man. And, I, you know, that had never came into my thought that he was just a man. I was trying to figure out how to think about him, but it never, I never thought of that. <laughs> and when they said that, it's just like a light went off. I, I knew it was going to be different from then on, <laughs> and it has. I just never looked back since then. From that moment, you know. Wow. And it, it was very—it's a very quick conversion, you know. I know, like uh, Dale Thuggy has mentioned, how hey, take a couple of years and and look into it, and you know, search out everything, and take a couple of years to come to a conclusion. I mean, I, I literally came went from Trinitarianism to Biblical Unitarianism within two weeks, <laughs> wow. without without ever thinking, looking to see if the Trinity was true or not. It, that was never on my mind. So it was uh, quite a shock. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too, because that that story you just related sounds a lot like Bill Schlegel's story. Yes, yes. In fact, when I heard his testimony on your show, I believe, and when I heard uh, I heard him, I thought the same thing. And so I contacted him right away, just to touch base with him, you know, and told him my story, and we've been friends ever since. So. Yeah. Because he started looking into that phrase, Son of God. Son of God, right. Yeah, and he, 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 like you, saw that that was a title for the Messiah, for the King of Israel, and there wasn't any kind of ontological what uh, content in that phrase. But still, I think your average cat, even having gotten to that point, wouldn't just uh, doubt the Trinity necessarily, right? Oh, uh, yeah. 
I mean, you guys definitely were like, well, well, hold on. If we take this leg out of the stool, does the stool still stand? <laughs> right. Uh, so that's interesting. And it did for me. Yeah. But today we're talking about the kingdom of God. You've written this article, The Postponement of the Kingdom, a Response to Preterists and Anti-Missionary Rabbis. And uh, this is on your blog, letthetruthcomeoutblog.wordpress.com. And uh, th- this is something that I have thought about over the years, here and there. It comes up from time to time. It's definitely a topic we're talking about. Probably the first time for me thinking about it was when I read Bart Ehrman's early Jesus book. What was it called? Jesus, the Apocalyptic Prophet or something like that. And uh, he wrote that book in the 90s. I came across it in the early 2000s. And I was reading this book, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this guy's so good on the kingdom. You know, his scholarship on the kingdom's on point. It's really fascinating. But he also believes that Jesus predicted an immediate kingdom, uh, drawing on the scholarship of a lot of others who came before him, following the stream of Johannes Weiss and Albert Schweitzer and their intellectual descendants, you know, Ehrman's an atheist, and so he, he doesn't have the resurrection of Jesus. So he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus thought the kingdom was going to come, and then, but it didn't come, so he's a false prophet, so there you go. And I'm like, right. wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What about the resurrection of Jesus? We've got such strong evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We can't just say the whole thing is a sham. You know what I mean? So that's when I started getting into this thought of postponements. Like, okay, well, maybe... It was at hand, it was near, and then it got postponed. But I don't want to steal your thunder. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about your approach, Troy? Well, actually, let's start with the kingdom and hear your thoughts on that, just to just to get that clear for people before we uh, get into this postponement idea. Okay. Uh, let me just say first, uh, I wasn't aware that Bart Ehrman, you know, what you were saying about his, his early book, but... Uh, maybe I should change the title of my article to a response to preterist anti-missionary rabbi and Bart Ehrman. Uh, <laughs> well, Bart Ehrman is the, just one voice of many. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? right. <laughs> but, the, but the postponement of the kingdom concept really answers his objections and the objections of scholars like him. Before we get into the postponement theory, it would be good to establish what the kingdom of God is uh, from a biblical perspective. As you well know, there are many views on on what the kingdom of God is. And when I did my article, I have a three-part article on the kingdom of God. Maybe you can post that in the, you know, the links to that. Yeah, I'll make a note. Podcast. But, you know, when I wrote those articles, I looked online. I wanted to see how people, different people defined it. I got exactly what I expected, a variety of definitions. You know, I think for most people, the kingdom, the, the term kingdom of God is very abstract. It's hard to pin down exactly what the phrase means in any concrete terms. You know, most people just see it as some kind of nebulous idea, you know, a spiritual thing, something that's spiritual, something that's unseen, something that's within you, something like that. But other views of, of the kingdom is that the kingdom is synonymous with the church or the kingdom is synonymous with Christianity or Christendom. All of these ideas about what the kingdom is, I think they are, 
you know, originate from early church fathers, probably from the third century on, but they were Gentile church fathers, you know, steeped in Greek thought, not very keen on Hebraic thought, you know. A lot of the church fathers had, in fact, made a conscious rejection of the Hebraic way of thinking, especially about the kingdom, you know, viewing the kingdom as uh, from the Hebrew perspective as being carnal, material, whereas, you know, they had come to see the kingdom as something spiritual and something that had the kingdom had supplanted, you know, Judaism or national Israel. But anyway, from a biblical perspective, the kingdom of God. And see, when I, you know, first started doing a study about this, just like I did it with the Gospels and the title Son of God, I wanted it. I wanted to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures to find out what it's all about. You know, the typical way Christians usually do things is if you want to know what something is, kingdom of God is, Son of God or whatever, you just go to the New Testament because that's going to give you the answer. But you know, and that's like kind of like a rule among scholars today, you know, is that you interpret the Old Testament through the New Testament. But I kind of took a different approach. I wanted to interpret the New Testament through the Old Testament. Since the New Testament was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. (laughs) Right. And and the, the Hebrew Scriptures came first, and that's what Jesus was referring to and everything he said. That's what the apostles were referring to was the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, it seemed kind of backwards to me to uh, develop an idea of what the kingdom was just from the New Testament and then read that back into the Old Testament. So I, I took a different approach and I wanted to see what the kingdom of God was from a Hebraic perspective. And doing that, you know, uh, it's very clear and plain in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The phrase kingdom of God does not necessarily appear anywhere in that in that sense in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, but you do get references to where God speaks of my kingdom or people will refer to God's kingdom in prayer. They'll say your kingdom. There is a couple of times you get the phrase the kingdom of Yahweh. But basically, from a Hebraic biblical perspective, the kingdom of God is the nation of Israel, you know, ruled by God as their king. Mm -hmm. Uh, When God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, he told them, he said that I have chosen you out of all the nations of the world to be a kingdom unto me. He said, uh, more specifically, he said a kingdom of priests. But Israel was to be God's kingdom. Out of all the kingdoms on the earth, God chose one kingdom to be specifically his kingdom and that he was going to be the king of that kingdom. Israel was a theocratic kingdom. In other words, it had God as its king. And as such, God provided them with a law, a covenant. Israel was was the kingdom of God, ruled by God, by God as their king. Uh, in time, of course, we know what happened. The people... During the time of Samuel, the prophet, the people demanded of Samuel that he give them a king like the other nations, a a human king. So Samuel didn't think this was a good idea. And he goes to God with this and 
he's kind of mad about it. And but God says, look, don't worry about it, Samuel. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me that they are rejecting as their king. And he says, but go ahead and give them the king. So Saul is the first king that God raises up and gives to Israel. Uh, that doesn't work out. And then God chooses David. And God is so pleased with David, uh, he makes a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant. The covenant says basically that just from David and his seed, only from David and his seed, uh, will kings be chosen to sit on the throne. So this narrows it down to one specific family, one specific line from which the kings can be chosen. Now, in this arrangement, God God is still the primary king of, of Israel. Even though, you know, they wanted a human king, God is not going to be kicked off his throne that easily. And he gives them a human king, but in real sense, the human king is just a, a vice regent of God. He rules at God's pleasure, and he rules on behalf of God. He's ruling over God's kingdom, which is Israel. And then we see that even the throne of the king of Israel is referred to as the throne of Yahweh in First Chronicles. So we get this picture that Israel is still a theocratic kingdom, even though there's a human king that God has provided. That human king is to reign uh, in accordance with the will of God. So you also see in, in the Hebrew scriptures that you see a close association of one particular or maybe two prophets with the king. I like to refer to them as court prophets. And this was because the king, again, the king was not to rule, uh, was not to be an autocrat and just rule uh, by his own will and do whatever he wanted. He was to follow God's law first. He was to follow God's directions and instructions through the prophets. You know, this this could be worked out uh, on a simple level of whether he should go to war with a particular nation. You know, he had to seek the Lord through the prophet to determine God's will in, in these matters. And so we see that even though a, a human king was established, Israel remained a theocratic kingdom. So all through the prophets, you see mention God being referred to as the king of Israel, even though there is a human king sitting on the throne. We see, again, like I mentioned before, the throne of Israel is referred to as Yahweh's throne. The kingdom of Israel is referred to as Yahweh's kingdom. So this, this is the biblical understanding of what the, of what the kingdom of God is. Now, this is going to be totally foreign to most Christians. Uh, most Christians would never even think of this uh, because they've been taught that the kingdom of God is something specifically associated with Jesus and something spiritual. Right, like the church or it's just a, a sense of belief in your heart or something. Right, yeah. But definitely not something as mundane as a, political... a particular nation and it's a political entity. But yet this is what the Bible tells us. And so when we come into the New Testament period and we see John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? Uh, he's the first one that we see in the Gospels 
that comes on the scene, and he begins to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I'm sorry, I might have to go back just a little more, because yeah. to understand what was meant by that, okay, we have to understand what happened to the kingdom. Okay, so Israel was the kingdom of God, the theocratic kingdom being ruled by David first, and then uh, David's seed after him, Solomon, and then others in that line God would choose as king. Well, over time, you know, the kings became more and more wicked. First Solomon under Solomon, because of his idolatry, God divided the kingdom of Israel into a northern and a southern kingdom. As time went on, the, I believe all of the kings of the northern kingdom were did evil in the eyes of God. Yeah. Uh, so eventually God sold uh, the northern kingdom into captivity under the Assyrian Empire. They were uh, taken captive and dispersed. The northern kingdom held out for at least uh, probably another hundred years or so. Uh, they had some good kings, uh, but uh, the majority of, of them were uh, just like the kings of the northern kingdom. Uh, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and eventually God sent them into to exile, too, under the uh, Babylonian Empire. So what we have here is that the kingdom of God was taken away from the people of Israel. Uh, there were no more a kingdom ruled by God. There were no more a kingdom ruled by a Davidic king who ruled under God and, and for God. They were now being ruled over by uh, foreign powers, uh, other empires, you know, kingdoms uh, besides God. So the, the Vedic dynasty was no longer a viable thing in, in, in for the Israelites. The kingdom of God and the Davidic dynasty was in a state of desolation. Even after the return of the Jews from exile back to the land, under Persian rule, the Davidic dynasty uh, was never reinstituted. They continued to be ruled by whatever world empire was ruling at that time. First, uh, they came back uh, in, from exile under the Persian Empire. Eventually, the Grecian Empire took over. And so Israel, though they were back in their land, was still under uh, the power of a foreign kingdom. Uh, not under a Davidic king, under the rule of God. But the prophets had predicted a time when, when God was going to raise up a descendant of David. And this descendant of David was going to restore Israel back to, uh, fully back to the land and restore the theocratic rule of God, uh, over this kingdom. And so, through this, these promises that God gave through the prophets, the Israelites began to have hope and began to wait and anticipate the coming of this one. Now, by the time of the first century, I would have to say that that anticipation and hope had kind of waned for the most part. Uh, this is why sometimes, you know, you see in the Gospels, uh, they'll note a specific person and it says, and he, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Because it was, 
you know, it was uh, something special to have somebody still waiting for the kingdom of God at that time. For the most part, that hope had waned, the anticipation had waned, but the promise was still sure, okay? So here we come now to the New Testament and we see John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Now he's declaring this to Israelites living in the land. What would they have thought when they heard John say that? What ideas would have come into their mind when they heard John say the kingdom of God is at hand? Would they have been thinking of something just on a spiritual level, something internal? Well, yeah, they wouldn't be thinking of forgiveness of sin or justification by faith or anything along those lines. Exactly. They, they, they had only one thing to go by, right? Even the Jewish writings in the intertestamental period, there was a, a, a strong emphasis on this coming kingdom of Messiah, you know, this coming Davidic ruler who, who would uh, restore Israel, bring peace to the, to the earth and all of that. And there's no doubt in my mind that the first century hearers of John's proclamation that the kingdom of heaven was at hand or the kingdom of God was that they were connecting it to that kingdom that they had been longing for and anticipating, right? Which is really a restoration of the kingdom of, of Israel, the theocratic kingdom of Israel under a Davidic ruler. It seems like there's a little more to it as far as some of Isaiah's prophecies that uh, this coming of the kingdom would be accompanied by also unprecedented abundance and prosperity and really an end to all war. Yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So... I, like I hear what you're saying as far as it being a reestablishment of the uh, kingdom of Israel, but it's also uh, seems to be even bigger and better yeah, than yeah. was because ever see, there before. The final stage of God's kingdom, we could say, or the ideal for God's kingdom is that it is going to expand over the whole globe. It's not going to be confined to Israel. We look at the Assyrian Empire. Okay, well, Assyria was a kingdom among other kingdoms, right? But what, how a kingdom became an empire was that they began to, you know, branch out beyond their own borders and began to conquer uh, the land of other kingdoms, right? And as they do that, they take control of those areas and they expand their kingdom that much and as they keep doing that they keep expanding their kingdom and you know they become what we call an an empire so you know that happened with the assyrian kingdom then the babylonian kingdom uh, gained the ascendancy and we talk today about the babylonian empire you know then the grecian empire well you know we might call the kingdom of god uh the Israelite empire, okay, in its final stage, it has a, a vital connection to the, to the nation, the kingdom of Israel, but in its final stage, it's going to become an empire that's going to take over the whole globe. So these ideas about uh, war ceasing between the nations is part of what that, of what that kingdom 
is going to entail. And part of the, you know, the, the prophetic picture that we get of when this Davidic king was going to come and restore this kingdom to Israel, that was all part of that prophetic picture. So John comes preaching this message, and then not long after him, Jesus himself comes on the scene and is proclaiming the same message, the kingdom of, of God is at hand. Early on in Jesus's ministry, he sends the 12 out to the different cities and two by two he sends them out and they're proclaiming the same message. The kingdom is at hand. The typical way, you know, Christianity has come to view this is that, well, Jesus said the kingdom was at hand. Therefore, after Jesus died and rose again, the kingdom came. It was established. They take the view that it's, you know, more of a spiritual or internal kind of thing. There's a real problem here and a problem that a lot of Christians just never think, never tend to even think about uh, because they have a wrong view of the kingdom, because they see the kingdom as only something internal or spiritual. Uh, they never see the problem. But the problem is that God, ha God has given through the Hebrew prophets uh, very specific and detailed prophecies about what was going to occur when this king came. You know, it included things like bringing all of the exiles of Israel back to the land. Uh, it included things like we've already talked about a cessation of war worldwide, uh, where all the nations metaphorically are beating their swords into plowshares. There's uh, the picture of prosperity uh, in Israel, from Israel out to the world. You get the picture that Israel is going to be the head of the nations. Jerusalem is going to be the center of world politics. The king will be ruling in Jerusalem. People from all the nations will come to Jerusalem uh, to bring their wealth to the city. They will come to learn of the law from Jerusalem, from the king. You know, you get this prophetic picture, but, you know, none of this has ever taken place. None of this has happened uh, since Jesus came. You know, Jesus shows up on the scene. He's basically rejected by the people put and put to death. Yes, he has risen from the dead, but something is not right here because none of these things that the Hebrew prophets foretold has come to pass. So what this has led to a number of things, like people had to come up with a an explanation for this, why these prophecies were not fulfilled. If we believe that uh, Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah, then how come these prophecies were not fulfilled in the way, you know, the Hebrew prophets foretold it? This is the problem. Again, like I said, a lot of Christians don't even realize it's a problem because they don't see the kingdom as something literal, uh, physical, material, political. They only see it as spiritual. This also has become uh, one of the main objections that Jews have had uh, ever since the beginning of why uh, no one should take serious the claim that Yeshua of Nazareth is the uh, Messiah that was foretold in the prophets. Because simply he did not fulfill the prophecies. He did not restore Israel to the land. He's not sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. 
people are not coming to Jerusalem, bringing their wealth and learning the law from from the king in Jerusalem. Uh, the nations have not ceased from war. So this is one of the main uh, objections that Jews have had over the centuries. But there's a big push today with what uh, has been called or called anti-missionary rabbis. Uh, you can find them online. And I mean, they are they are vicious in their attacks against uh, Yeshua as being the Messiah. You know, the main objection they have is this non-fulfillment of the of the prophecy. But uh, another way that Christians came to deal with this problem, different ways of trying to solve the problem began to, you know, arise. And one of them is what we know today as preterism. And preterism tries to answer the problem of the non-fulfillment of, of prophecy by, in effect, saying, well, actually, the prophecies were fulfilled, just not in a literal sense. They were fulfilled in a spiritual sense. And most preterists will say that all of those prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD. I don't want to, you know, say anything offensive to any brothers out there who, who hold to preterist viewpoint. I consider them brothers. I don't consider this to be necessarily something that's going to uh, keep somebody out of the kingdom. But I mean, I have to be honest and truthful. You know, I, I just don't understand how someone can read the, the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures and make such a claim that, that they've been fulfilled in a spiritual way in 70 AD when Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans and, and destroyed and the people of Israel were sent into exile. I don't see how that fulfills any of those prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. Sounds like quite the opposite, in fact. So this was one way of trying to solve the problem of non-fulfillment of, of prophecy. Frankly, I just don't think it works. Uh, do you have any knowledge of the preterism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen them around. Uh, you know, there's the, the two different main forms. You've got full preterism and partial preterism. Right. And uh, the full preterists, uh, of whom I've encountered a couple over the years, they would argue that everything has already been fulfilled. You know, there's nothing left to be done. Jesus already came back, already gathered together his chosen people. And, you know, we're yeah. just sort of like awkwardly plodding along on earth. Like, it's hard to see how a full preterist is different than a deist, essentially, that God is totally disinterested in what's happening in the world. And then the partial preterists, you know, they have a much more viable theory in the sense that they still see Christ coming as a future event, but they believe everything else has already occurred apart from the coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. So I, th I would say that I, I don't know if I'd be quite as charitable as you. I would say full preterists, I, I would not recognize them as Christians. With yeah. the partial preterists, I would recognize them as brothers and sisters, no problem. You're right. It's a response to these timing statements we see in the Gospels where Jesus seems to be saying, and you're right, John the Baptist really starts it, seems to be saying, look, this kingdom's about to happen. It's about to come on earth. And so the, the preterist is saying, well, it did come. But uh, then the question is, well, pfft, in what sense did it come? And that's really right. where I think there's a lot of disagreement. Exactly, because they, they can't say it, it happened literally. Right. They will typically say Christ came in judgment in the year 70 
what, in the guise of Titus, Vespasian and Titus, who destroyed the temple. Uh, But if you look at the content of the kingdom, like you've already pointed out, from an Old Testament perspective, uh, it's a lot more than just judgment. You know, yes, it is judgment, but there's also restoration. Exactly. And there's the political reality. Right. You you can't have the fulfillment of the Hebrew prophets just in a judgment on Jerusalem. It, it's it, You just can't do it, okay? There is the promise of the restoration of Israel to its former status uh, as God's kingdom, the theocratic kingdom where God is ruling over the, the na- nation of Israel through a Davidic king. Right. Uh, so... Without that, you don't have a fulfillment of prophecy. So, and and I should have been a little more clear when I said what I said. I, I was re- in my mind thinking about the Pauline brothers, uh, about you know accepting them as as believers. Uh, right, the full preterists, uh I believe that they deny uh, physical resurrection, if I'm not mistaken, not of Jesus necessarily, but of of believers. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I would have a hard time uh, accepting them as true brethren. But uh, OK, so uh, what we want to look at is another way to solve the problem or to answer the problem of the non-fulfillment of prophecy is this idea, this theory, concept of the postponement of the kingdom. This would be to say that when John the Baptist came and Jesus after him proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, that they were talking about that same kingdom that we see in the Hebrew scriptures, the same kingdom that no doubt the hearers of John and, and Yeshua would have thought of when they heard them proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. They would no doubt have thought that they were proclaiming that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel under a Davidic ruler was about to happen okay that's how they would have heard it that's how they would have understood it they couldn't have understood it any other way we would expect then the fulfillment of all those prophecies to take place within a very short period of time but we we know that they did not and even down to this very day they have not so the theory is this that that the establishment of the kingdom at that time was near, but that it was contingent upon the repentance and obedience of the people of Israel at that time, whether it was going to actually be established. Because of their response, the kingdom was postponed. It was withdrawn. It was, we could say, delayed until a further time in the future. Now, I think there are, in my article, I, I give four facts that we see in the Gospels that, in my mind anyway, establish the, this postponement of the kingdom theory as being truthful. So the first one would be that the establishment of the kingdom was proclaimed as being at hand or being near. Okay, we already saw that. Point two would be that the establishment of the kingdom was contingent. Okay, now in a few minutes, we'll look at some scriptures that confirm that point. But the third point would be that the Jewish leaders rejected Yeshua as their king, and they led the people to do likewise. Now, this is an important factor that 
that the Jewish leadership had to acknowledge Yeshua as their king and actually anoint him as king. In doing so, the people would have followed their lead. But in fact, the Jewish leadership rejected Yeshua. Most certainly did reject him. <laughs> no question. There. Yes. Yeah. All right. And, that, and then we go to the fourth fact that we see in the, in the New Testament, that after Yeshua was removed from the earth, his loyal followers, his disciples, are found to be in a state of waiting and anticipation for something to, to come. Okay. The establishment of the kingdom. All right. So those four points, I think, you know, establish uh, the idea of the postponement of the kingdom. Now, the first point, nobody's going to argue with that, okay, that the kingdom was proclaimed as being at hand or near by John the Baptist and by Yeshua. Uh, nobody's going to argue that point. They're going to say, well, yes, it, uh, it was and, and it did come. They, they might recognize what, what the Hebrew scripture says about the kingdom, but they'll, they'll say, but this is a new king. Okay, it's a, you know, we have a new covenant. We have a new testament. And so we got a new kingdom too. Okay. That's how most people would say, you know, explain that. Uh, so they don't even, they're not even aware of the problem <laughs> of the non-fulfillment of, of the prophetic scripture. It's just, the, it was a different kingdom. So it's got nothing to do with that thing that was prophesied. That because Israel rejected the Messiah, God rejected them. And so all of those promises are done away with. But, you know, there's a big problem with that when when you see God say things like he's telling Israel that he's going to judge them. And he says, but I'm not going to destroy you completely because you're my chosen people. And, you know, basically he's saying, I'm never going to destroy you completely. Uh, I will discipline you. I will. You take the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These promises are everlasting promises. It doesn't matter what any generation of Israelites do that may cause God to uh, reject them and send them out of the land in the exile or whatever. The promises to the patriarchs remain. Okay, so uh, Paul says God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Okay, the call of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises made to them are irrevocable. They, they can't be annulled or done away with. God has ideals in his mind, okay? When he chose Israel, he had an ideal of what that nation was to be. And, you know, Israel has never attained to that ideal. Well, we might say at uh, some point, they're under the reign of David and Solomon came very close to it. But uh, since this, uh, Solomon uh, went, fell into idolatry and the kingdom was divided, then from that point on, you know, Israel was never going to attain that ideal. But, you know, God's plans are not thwarted, right? He's going to have that ideal. He hasn't given up on his plan for Israel. He hasn't annulled the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those promises are everlasting promises, and God is going to have his way in the end. Yeah, so the promises of God are, are irrevocable. They, they can't be annulled. But how he gets it done, that's not necessarily irrevocable, right? No, no, exactly. exactly. So it could there be done is... this way, it could be done that way, you know, but he's right. working with free moral agents who are allowed to reject his will. Right, exactly. And that's what we're going to look at next, this idea of contingency, okay? 
that's my second point, uh, the four points, is that the establishment of the kingdom was, was contingent. Now, as soon as you start talking about something like this, a lot of people get very nervous and they just don't like this idea, you know. Uh, they think through the influence of certain theological perspectives, you know, Calvinism, Reformed theology, people get this idea that everything is set in stone. It's all predetermined. There's no deviation from the plan in any sense. When you read the scripture, I mean, it just shouts out to you that that is not the way to view things. Let, let me give you an example. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, what was his intention? His intention was to take them to the promised land, right? He told them that that's why he was bringing them out of Egypt and he was going to take them to this land of plenty, uh, land flowing with milk and honey. And he was going to give them that land as their inheritance forever. And we have nothing to tell us at any point from the outset when God delivered them out of Egypt that there was going to be any delay in this. They were going to go straight there, straight to the land. So, you know, it took a month or two or whatever to travel there. And when they get to the borders of the, of the land of Canaan, Moses sends 12 spies into the land to spy out the land to see, you know, the situation. So the 12 spies go and they, you know, they see it's a great land. It's abundant prosperity. The fruit is abundant and everything is just like God said. Only there's this one problem. The people that live there, <laughs> these are big people. <laughs> these are big people, you know. So they come back and they report to the Israelites, you know, that yes, it's just like God said, it's abundance. There's abundance there. But the people that live there, they're very large people. And we just are not able to go up and take the land. Well, these 12 spies spread this around, well, 10 of the 12, two of them maintain that, yes, we can go up and take it. God is with us. God has promised us. Let's go get it. But 10 of them uh, spread this negative report among the whole community to the point that the whole community refused to go up and take the land. Though God had commanded them to do so. Well, if you read the story, it's in Numbers 14. God is furious with the people. He's ready to just wipe them all out. And Moses intercedes for them, and God, you know, relents from that. But what does God do? He delays or postpones their entrance into the land of Canaan for 40 years. 40 years. This postponement is in direct relationship to their refusal to go up and take the land as God commanded them to do. So this is a, you know, one good example of how God had a plan. He commanded the people to do something. The people refused to do it. And as a result, what God had planned was postponed, was delayed. Now, this doesn't mean that it, it wasn't going to happen. It certainly, it was going to happen. Right. Well, he had promised to Moses that it was going to happen in, what, Exodus 6 or 7? So, yeah, it, ha it, it needed to happen. 
but how exactly. and how and when uh you know was moses going to be 40 years old or was he going to be 80 years old exactly god tells them directly it is because you refused to go up and take the land as i commanded you that now every one of you who came out of egypt every one of you will die in this desert i'm going to make you remain in this desert for 40 years until every one of you die in this desert and only your children who come after you will go into the land. All right. So a direct connection between their refusal to obey God's command and a postponement or delay on what God promised to give. The next generation, they did obey. They went up and, and they went into the land. So God's promises, what he has planned for his people, though it may be postponed because of the response of the people, ultimately it's going to be fulfilled. Man's disobedience can't stop God's plan from happening. It can delay it, and that's because there needs to be a time for judgment and, and discipline when there's rebellion. And so that time in itself is a delay. That's, that's a, an example of contingency in the scriptures. There are other examples. We could think about during the Babylonian captivity, the prophets prophesied about their return back to the land. And it sure seems in those prophecies that it looks like that their return to the land was going to be something very glorious and kind of like a restoration of back to their original state and even a more glorious state. But they come back to the land and it never pans out. You know, it just never happens. They're still under Gentile domination, uh, even up until the time when Yeshua comes on the scene. They're still under Gentile domination, right? The Romans are in their land ruling over them. You know, we can see that there was most likely contingency in, in that sense, too. Read the prophecy of Malachi. This is after they had come back to the land. And there were high hopes. They rebuilt the temple. And according to the, the prophecies, something great should have happened, but it never did. And you read Malachi and you see, you might see why. <laughs> uh, God had a, some problems with the people at that time who had come back to the land. Again, there was disobedience. There was rebellion. There was people just not doing things the way God wanted them to do it. And uh, especially the leaders, you know, the priests and the elders and the, the corruption and, and things like that. So, you know, we can see contingency there. But let's look at how we can see that there's a contingency with the establishment of the kingdom that was proclaimed to be near or at hand by John and by Yeshua. Yeah, this would be good so you can lay out your evidence because it's not just a theory. You do have some scriptures Yes. So there's about three, maybe four main passages that, that we can get this uh, idea of contingency from. So if we look at Matthew 23, 37 through 39, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he, he says this. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see here that Jesus is addressing the city of Jerusalem in a kind of like a prophetic woe. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. Kind of rehearsing the history of Jerusalem and Jerusalem leadership, uh, how they tended over the years to, to treat the prophets and, the, and those that God sent to them, right? And that's because the leadership, for the most part, was, was typically corrupt. And the prophets would come proclaiming repentance, but, but mostly they would come proclaiming the judgment of God uh, upon them. The people just didn't want to accept that. And so they would mistreat the prophets, kill some of them. You know, you can read all about that in the, in the Kings and the Chronicles and some of the prophets. You know, he starts out kind of rehearsing that, that history and, you know, you get the idea that nothing's really changed much. Okay. Jerusalem leadership is still the same as they've typically been in the past. That is, they always seem to be in opposition to God's plans. But Jesus says, he says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. That to me is a, a fitting depiction of a king wanting to provide for his people, his nation, that care and protection that a king provides. He says, how often I've longed. You know, I can imagine Yeshua just from a very early age knowing who he is, knowing at some point that he is the chosen one from David's line to be that king. Going up to Jerusalem year after year for the feast as he's growing up, of course, you know, we don't, the Gospels mostly start with Jesus at age 30, right, about to start his ministry. We get a little glimpse in Luke of Yeshua at uh, age 12, I think, he, where he goes up to Jerusalem with his family for one of the feasts. But, you know, Yeshua, as a young Jewish man, was required to go up to Jerusalem every year for three of the feasts, right? So no doubt he went to Jerusalem many times, uh, even though it's not recorded in, in the Gospels. And I can imagine him knowing that he's the, the chosen one from the line of David and seeing every time he goes to Jerusalem, you know, seeing the oppression of the Roman government in the land with their soldiers in the land and the heavy taxation that they placed upon them and the things that... Uh, the Jewish people were not allowed to do, you know, because of Roman Roman rule. And I can imagine Yeshua going to Jerusalem all these many years and just longing to fulfill the prophetic picture of what he was being raised up to do, to be their king and to deliver them from this bondage and to take them under his wings. But uh, he says that now, you know, having come out to the world, publicly proclaiming himself as someone sent from God and as a Messiah, they were not willing, he says. So he says, how often I long to gather your children together and you were not willing. Now, when he's saying Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but, you know, he's not referring to the brick and mortar of the walls of Jerusalem or the buildings of Jerusalem, right? He's referring to the, the people, right? He's referring to, first of all, the leadership and the people, okay? But I, I think the leadership is really in view 
uh, more than we might think. If you go back, you know, I think there was a, a pattern that was established for the bringing a king, raising a king up uh, to the throne. If you look first in, in the first king, Saul, uh, Samuel anointed Saul as king privately, and then he presented him to the people, and the people had to approve of him, okay? And so the elders uh, of the all the tribes, you know, come together and they approve of Saul, and they say, Saul is our king. Then you get the same thing with David. David is anointed privately by Samuel first, but then later, after a long period of time, actually, the elders of Israel, of all the tribes, come together. They acknowledge David as the king, and they anoint him again as king. And then we see the same thing with Solomon. God had already chosen Solomon out of all of David's sons to be the next one to sit on the throne. But it was necessary for the all the elders of the tribes to come together and to acknowledge Solomon as the one whom God chose and then to anoint him publicly. What the leadership does, they are, that's what leaders do, right? So if you're going to lead the people, you bring the one whom God chosen before the people and acknowledge him openly before the people so the people will follow suit. This is why it's very important that the Jerusalem leadership acknowledge Yeshua as the chosen one from the line of David, as the king. Yeah. Well, you did have the people... You did have the people proclaim him at the triumphal entry, but then the yeah, leaders rejected yeah. him. It's almost like it's the opposite order, <laughs> but uh, the leaders rejected him, clearly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not so sure. Uh, I have to look into it a little more, but I, I think, you know, the people that were proclaiming Yeshua as the king when he was riding into Jerusalem and they were putting their palm branches and cloaks on the road, I think these were people his followers from Galilee that had followed him to, to Jerusalem. Jesus did have a, a larger group of disciples besides the 12, you know, from Galilee. And that's most likely who that was that was, they had followed Jesus to Jerusalem. And they were the ones hailing him as the king as he was riding into Jerusalem. That is not to say that, you know, some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem did not acknowledge Yeshua as the king. But we, we know that the leadership rejected him, and we know that the majority of the people did too. They followed the lead of, the, of their leaders. Uh, why should they accept Yeshua as the king if the leadership is rejecting? When you go in the book of Acts and you see Peter in a couple of times in his sermons, you know, he's pinpointing the Jewish leadership for what they did, rejecting Yeshua. It was very important that, that the leadership acknowledge Yeshua so that the people would follow suit. Here he says, you know, how often I've longed to, in a sense, be your king, but you are not willing. And so he says, now look, your house is left to you desolate. Most people understand this to refer to the destruction of the temple in uh, 70 AD, all right? Because, you know, your house is left to you desolate. Okay, so the house that's associated with Jerusalem, where that's the temple. I think that's the way most people would understand this. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. He says, your house is left to you desolate. Now that word left there 
it has a kind of a wide semantic range to it, but it definitely has the idea of to remain in a condition or a place to be left remaining. So like it's used a couple of times, like uh, in the same chapter or next chapter or something where Jesus says, um, again, they they were talking about the temple and Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. Okay. And it's the same word there. So not one stone will be left remaining upon another stone is basically the meaning, right? So I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, your house will remain desolate. It's being left to you desolate. In other words, it's already desolate, and it could have been changed had you been willing, but now because you are unwilling, it is left to you desolate. It remains desolate. If that's true, if that's how we can understand Yeshua's words, then it wouldn't be referring to the temple because at that time the temple was not desperate. Uh, that wouldn't happen for another 40 years. What I would propose is that the house that he's referring to, what other house is has an, a close association with the city of Jerusalem that was in a desolate condition at the time Jesus said these words? And that would be the house of David, the, the Davidic dynasty. As we saw before, the, the Davidic dynasty was in, in a state of desolation at the time Yeshua came on the scene. You know, you can read about this desolation of the Davidic throne and dynasty in uh, Psalm 89. Uh, we're not going to go there, you know, now for time's sake, but I would encourage anybody to read the whole song. But the, the last section of that song uh, speaks about the desolation of the house of David, the Davidic throne. The house of David was in that desolate condition ever since the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians came in, took the king to Babylon, and they destroyed the city. And there's never been a Davidic king sitting on the throne of Israel ever since then. We can see that the house of David or the dynasty of David was in a desolate state at the time Jesus was on the scene. He's telling them, if, you know, I have longed to gather your children together. In other words, I've longed to fulfill my role as king and to gather you together as uh, under my wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. In this, we see, uh, I see contingency, right? That what if they had been willing? What if the Jerusalem leadership had acknowledged Yeshua as the king and anointed him publicly in front of the people and the people would have rallied around him as their king? What would have happened? It appears, from if I'm correct in interpreting this the way I am, that the house that was desolate would have been restored. And, and indeed, this was the promise uh, in the Hebrew scriptures that the house of David would be restored. The, the fallen tent of David would be restored at some point. God would raise up a king from the line of David, and this would bring about the restoration of the uh, Davidic dynasty. And then he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
this is uh, a phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that refers to the king. It comes from, uh, I believe, Psalm 118, which depicts a royal procession up to the house of God. In the song, the people are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of, of Yahweh. And they're shouting this to, to the king. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, this is what his disciples are shouting. They're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord, which is recognizing him as that Davidic, that descendant of David, who God has raised up to restore the Davidic house, the Davidic dynasty, to and then to restore the kingdom to Israel. So we see from this passage that the establishment of the kingdom under the rule of this Davidic uh, descendant was contingent upon the leadership and then the people following their lead, uh, acknowledging Yeshua as their king. Uh, any questions about that one? I don't have any substantive comments on, on that. You know, it's something I have to think about a little bit more, to be honest. The house left you desolate uh, point you make. But let's let's take a look at what else you have. All right. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, uh, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Without elaborating too much, let me just say this seems pretty clear that it's, uh, there's contingency involved here. If you had known this day, what would bring you peace? And that peace, no doubt, is that shalom that is often foretold in the, in the prophetic word about that time, that messianic period, this peace, you know, that would come. But he says, if you had only known, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then toward the end, he says that instead of that peace, you, instead of that, you are going to experience a, a devastation. And it's directly linked to the fact that you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You know, so we have to ask the question, like, what would have happened if they had recognized the time of their visitation? What would have happened if they, if they had known on that day what would bring them peace? And that is no doubt that he was their king and, and that by acknowledging him as the king, that the kingdom would have been established. That's the, kind of questions that I ask when I read something like that, you know, what, what would have been had the people recognized Jesus? The only other passages I have, and this probably will get, is a little more involved, so I don't know if it will have time, but let me just do it briefly, as brief as I can. But uh, in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first. And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. All right. So 
there's this prophecy in the Hebrew Bible that Elijah is going to come prior to the Messiah. Okay. Doesn't say it quite that explicitly, but that's how the Jews understood it. That comes from uh, the book of uh, Malachi, I believe. Obviously, the teachers of the law at that day understood Malachi to be saying that because that's what the disciples asked him. Why then do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, the teachers of the law are wrong. No, he says, well, to be sure, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. Now, you have to couple this with a, a passage later, uh, earlier in Matthew, in Matthew eleven fourteen where Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's talking about John the Baptist, how he was the greatest of all that are born of women. He was the greatest uh, one and he was a prophet. And then he says about how from the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God uh, has been suffering violence and the violent are snatching it away. Okay, that's one way it can be interpreted. It's a very uh, ambiguous passage and it's able to be interpreted in various ways depending on whether you take uh, the verbs as passive or as middle they could go either way so after saying that he says talking about the kingdom of god uh, suffering violence i think that's how, the way it should be translated at the hands of the, the leadership he says but if you are willing to receive it then he is the Elijah who was to come. John is the Elijah who was to come. Now, typically, people are going to take that when he says, if you are willing to receive it, uh, most of the time, and I always took it this way, if you're willing to receive that John is the Elijah to come. But he just finished talking about the kingdom, and then he says, if you are willing to receive it, John is the Elijah who was to come. I think he may be referring to, if you are willing to receive the kingdom, then John is the Elijah who was to come. So there's a sense in which if the prophecy is given in such a way that if the people would have acknowledged Yeshua as their king then, the kingdom of God could have been established then, and, it, and John the Baptist would have fulfilled the prophecy about Elijah. In other words, he would have been Elijah who was to come. But because the kingdom is rejected, now he said that in earlier on in the, in the gospel, but by this point where the passage in Matthew 17, now he's saying that Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Although Elijah has already come in John, but they did not recognize him. So again, we see that there's some contingency built into the prophecies if the people had accepted yeshua at that time if the kingdom had been established then then john would have fulfilled the prophecy about elijah but because he's being rejected first they rejected john and now they're rejecting him we can now we can look to a future fulfillment of that prophecy about elijah in other words elijah is coming in the future to fulfill that prophecy. It could have been fulfilled by John and it we wouldn't have needed any further future fulfillment of it. But because he was rejected, we now can look for a future fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. 
Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about the counterfactual scenario where they did accept Jesus? Uh, Jesus would still need to die for our sins, right? How would that How would that work out? It was prophesied that the servant of the Lord would die. You know, we can only conjecture on that, right? I mean, we no one knows exactly how it, it would have worked out. But, I mean, I can think of a scenario where it could have worked. Had the, the Jerusalem leadership rallies around Yeshua, brings him before the people, anoints him as king, all the people rally to him. Yeshua then begins to fulfill the prophetic picture, conquering the enemies, uh, releasing Israel from their oppressors, beginning the whole thing, you know, that, that was prophesied, uh, the establishment of the, of the kingdom. And that Rome, in response to this, would have no doubt arrested Jesus. If it had to play out that he had to die, then Jesus would submit to this. And then Jesus would have died and then rose from the dead. And then everything would have probably been fulfilled at that point. And then immediately establish the kingdom of God. Exactly, exactly. Which is what the apostles were thinking, right? Because they asked him in Acts 1-6, right? They're like, oh, is this the time? Right. I, I think that's exactly what they were thinking. Acts 1-6, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, that shows, number one, they're, think, they're not thinking about a spiritual kingdom, you know, something that's within, something that's unseen. They still have in their mind that it's the kingdom prophesied by the Hebrew prophets of the restoration of the theocratic kingdom of Israel under the Davidic king. This is presumably after Jesus had been meeting with them over a 40-day period after his resurrection. And it even says in Acts 1, that during that time when he was meeting with them, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so at the end of that period, right before Jesus is ascended, they ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? How could they ask such a question? And he's been teaching them this whole time. If he is teaching them that, it, that this is a whole different kingdom now, guys, this is not about the kingdom you heard about in the Hebrew prophets. We're doing something new now. If that's what he taught them during that, that 40 day period about the kingdom, then why would they ask such a question like that? The fact that they asked that question shows that there was no change in the meaning of what the kingdom of God was. They still held to the same concept of the kingdom of God, and they were expecting it now that the Messiah had died and rose from the dead. They were expecting it to happen. Jesus doesn't deny, doesn't say anything to them to dissuade them of their belief in what the kingdom is he simply tells them it's not for you to know the time that's in the father's hands and it'll happen when when his timing is right and then that leads to my fourth point uh, fourth fact of the gospel is that from that point on uh, all in the rest of the new testament you see the believers the disciples waiting in anticipation for yeshua to come to return and establish this kingdom. And nobody knows when it's going to happen, right? So uh, one of the things like preterists usually bring up is that, well, it, it had to happen in the first century because all the apostles said it was going to happen in, in their time. Well, right, that's because they didn't know the time. How could Yeshua say to them, you don't know the timing, but then we're going to say they knew it was going to happen in, in their generation? 
Well, no, that doesn't jive. Yeah, either they know it they or they don't know it. Right. They believed it was going to happen in their generation. That that wasn't a revelation that they had that it was going to happen. In their the reason God withholds the knowledge of the time is because he wants, he knows it's going to be a longer time. We don't know that. Uh, the, the first disciples didn't know that, but God knew that. So God knew here was going to be another generation and another generation after that. He wants every generation to have the anticipation and to be waiting and to be longing for it. Okay, so the only way you can do that is to withhold that information about the timing. Because <laughs> if he would have told that first generation, oh, it's going to be another 2,000 years, then you'd have 2,000 years of generations of believers not anticipating it, not looking for it. And there's something about that that looking for it and anticipating it and longing for it to happen in your lifetime. There's something about that that just, it's a vital part of our, of our faith and of our relationship to Yeshua to have that anticipation. If we knew the timing, we wouldn't have that. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Troy. If the first time around the requirement was for the Jewish leaders to accept Jesus as the Messiah, would it be fair to say that that is currently what God is waiting on to send Jesus back? That if the Jewish, I don't know who the Jew, Jewish leaders are, but you know, I guess the religious leaders or the political leader, I don't know. What, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's very likely that I don't know so much if God is waiting on them. I think now God has set a time and he's going to do it. And at that time, they, they will acknowledge whatever leaders are in place at that time, they will acknowledge it's going to be overwhelming. They won't be able to deny it. I don't know necessarily. I mean, you know, look, I could be wrong about this, but I don't know necessarily if God is waiting for that or if God just has a set time now and that when that happens, the Jerusalem leadership will acknowledge. Yeah, I bring that up because there are some Christians who are very focused on Israel and really want to see Christianity, or at least some form of Christianity, maybe a minimalist Christianity that just acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, but, you know, maybe the Jewish people are still keeping the law, more of a messianic kind of flavor. They want to see that spread in Israel because they believe that until that happens, Jesus can't come back. But you're not really going that far. No, I I, I wouldn't uh, repudiate that altogether. Uh, I'm just saying I'm not sure. I don't you know, I haven't come to a, any any uh, firm conviction on that. I mean, it could be possible, you know. Okay. We might as well have you address the whole issue of open theism versus Arminianism, where you've got the, the one view that says the future is open, and God has not already looked to see or has doesn't have access to see what happens in the future versus the view that says, oh, no, God can see the future. He saw that the Jewish leaders were going to reject him because you do get into this a little bit. So could you give us a little bit of a rundown on that? Yeah. You know, if anybody out there doesn't know what open theism is, basically it's the idea that the future is, is open to God depending upon what people do, okay, that God has given men free will and that there may be contingencies involved in the working out of God's plan, not a contingency of God's plan. Okay. Not like 
uh, oh, well, man's will toward plan A. Now God's got to go to plan B. No, it's the same plan. Just maybe the way it's worked out has to be rearranged to accommodate the free will of man. I think God cares so much about the freedom of man that he does this. He builds contingencies into his plan. Personally, I lean uh, toward the open theism view. I don't accept it, you know, everything I've heard from that, from that perspective. There's some things I think go too far, but I, I think there's a lot to commend it. It tries to take the scripture much more seriously, I think, than the other view, uh, which, you know, has to reinterpret a lot of scripture. Well, just for instance, you know, when, when God made Saul king and then uh, gave him a command to do something and, and he rebelled, uh, he sent Samuel to him. And Samuel says to him, God would have established your throne forever. But now he has taken it away from you. That's a contingency. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, you can try to spin that any way you want to make it fit your theology, but that's a contingency. God would have done something different if Saul had done something different. I don't see how you escape that. You do point out that it is possible that God foresaw that contingency yeah, and okay. sort of planned with that in mind, right? Yeah, uh, that's one of the things, you know, where I, I don't go so far with the open theism, you know. And I know there's a lot of different views, you know, not every open theist is going to think the same. I don't have a problem with God foreseeing things, okay. It's just maybe like how does he foresee it, but we really don't know. I don't hold to the classical view of God, you know, like just like he just automatically has all knowledge of everything just by virtue of being God. Because in the scripture, you see God testing men to see what is in their heart. Uh, he led, he tells Israel, I led you through the desert 40 years to test you, to find out what is in your heart, if you will love me and obey me. There's a sense in which I think God can foresee things because he knows people much better than any, it, you know, it's like if, if you and I can predict like what our wife will do or, or how our wife will respond to something that we have to tell them. And, and I can do that pretty good. If I know, if I have something I got to tell my wife and I'm thinking about it all day, I, I know exactly how she's going to respond when I tell her because I know her. If I can do that, okay, then how much more God, whose knowledge is so, of people and of everyone really, is so much greater than any knowledge we can have of each other? And certainly he can foresee, in a sense, how people are going to react and respond to certain things, especially Israel. You know, I mean, how many times in the Hebrew Bible we find God, you know, talking about the nation of Israel as a whole. And, you know, he says things like, you are stiff necked, you know, stubborn people, rebellious people. I know that you're going to do this because you are stubborn people. His experience with them caused him to know how they're going to react in, in the distant future. He even had Moses write a song for them, telling Moses once they get it into, just as they were about to go into the land. He says, Deuteronomy 32, yeah. Yeah, he says, look, they're going to go into, to get into the land. They're going to settle in their houses. They're going to have all this abundance and prosperity, and then they're going to forget about me, and they're going to worship other gods. And he says, but write this song, and so that all their generations 
will remember this song and they'll know that everything that happened to them in judgment happened because of their rebellion. Happened just as God said it was going to happen. If, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. God had 40 years of experience with them in the desert. When he was ready to put, bring them into the promised land, he knew what was going to happen. <laughs> and he was right. Okay, Read the book of Judges. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, open theists are not going to have a problem with what I'm saying, the postponement theory, okay? Because they allow for that openness in, in the future things, that contingency where God will, uh, in a sense, adjust the way he's working out his plan according to how men respond to him. Yeah. Well, open theism always takes God's involvement and interaction with people very seriously. But I think some of the, the foreknowledge views, because you have kind of a sliding scale. You've got the open theism, which everything's open, and really anything could happen. And, and then you have the, the middle position, the Arminian position, often so-called, that God can see everything that's ever going to happen in the future. He has full access, exhaustive foreknowledge. But somehow, and this is really a, quite a mystery, by knowing that, he still preserves people's free will. And then the third position, the strongest position, is the traditional Calvinist view, which says God knows everything that is going to happen and has determined it as well, at least with respect to salvation. And so you have a wide spectrum. And what I hear you saying as far as this postponement idea is that it's still compatible with any one of these three views because God could have planned out that the people would reject him and that this contingency would be would be an actuality. Or it could have just happened and he didn't realize it was going to happen. It could happen or not happen. And it, whatever happened, he still had a plan figured out, right? Yeah, I, I would think it's, it's probably not compatible with the extreme deterministic view. Because they really say God knows it because he's determined. Okay, that's why he knows it. But he could determine that they reject him, right? I, I can't go with that. It, look, you, you only got two choices. Did God predetermine for the Jewish leadership to reject Yeshua as the king? Or did they have the free will to accept him or reject him? So that's the only two options. Based on like the passages I read from the Gospels, things Yeshua said, uh, that they could have, they had the free will and they could have accepted him as the king and the kingdom could have been established. I think God knew this in advance, that they were going to act the way they did, okay, based on, you know, everything God knew about the Jews. He knew that he knew that that was going to happen. That doesn't mean they, they, they didn't have the free will, okay? Just because God can know how somebody's going to act freely doesn't mean God's determining them to act that way. Of course, you know, this, the postponement view, I think, is going to go more easily with the open view. And, and it's going to go over, you know, the least with the strict determinist view. I think the middle ground could still accept this, this view without a problem. Okay, well, uh, let's bring our conversation to an end there. And if people want to delve more deeply into this subject, they can read the article on let the truth come out blog.wordpress.com 
is called The Postponement of the Kingdom, A Response to Preterist and Anti-Missionary Rabbis. Quite a title you got there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anything else you'd like to say about uh, the blog or your future plans as we just kind of wind things down here? I would also encourage people to read my three-part article on the kingdom of God. It, It lays out the biblical references to the kingdom of God, and then I answer a lot of the objections that are raised based on passages that make it seem like the kingdom was established at the time of Jesus or that the kingdom is spiritual or in, in you know inside of us or something there are a few passages that would appear to say that you know so I give answers to those in part three of that uh, series very good well thanks for taking the time to talk with me today thank you Sean I appreciate it well that brings this interview to an end what did you think We'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you agree with Troy Salinger? Do you think the kingdom got postponed, or do you think something else was going on in these imminent sayings of Christ, as well as John the Baptist that we find in the Gospels? You might even find some in Paul and the book of Revelation, too, if you really look. Uh, Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 524, Kingdom Postponed, and leave your feedback there. Someone wrote in who preferred to remain anonymous saying, Thanks for all your videos online about the one true God. Very helpful for people like me who arrived at this conclusion through their own study, and yet who now feel kind of alone in the general Christian church, which wouldn't hesitate to slap the heretic label at me without much thought. Uh, She goes on, I've listened to several explanations from various Unitarians online of Thomas's response in John 2028. And they are usually something along the lines of Thomas just recognized that God was in Christ. Or some will say something like Thomas recognized the Lord and the God of his Lord. And that's it without saying much else. For some reason, these weren't satisfactory with me. And I struggled with this first for quite a while. She goes on to lay out her explanation as follows. Uh, She makes the point that the resurrection which was the key event everyone was testifying to Thomas about, involves two individuals. Not only the one raised, but the one who raised him. So God and Christ. And she lists some verses on that. And then this is what she says. She says, So when Thomas believed that Jesus rose again, he recognized the two involved in the resurrection, Jesus and God, my Lord and my God. I don't know. I find this explanation pretty compelling as it fits the context and it's scripturally founded. Just curious if you think it has credence or see any issues with it that I may have missed. Well, thanks for writing in. The text reads, Thomas answered him. This is John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, when when John, the gospel writer, says him, it's a singular personal pronoun. I don't think it really works to say there are two referred to in this statement, my Lord, my God, because it says he answered him and it would say he answered them. Although maybe you could get around that to some degree. You could say, well, you know, he answered him, my Lord, my God, saying my Lord to Jesus and then my God to someone else. That's a little, I don't know. I think that seems a little strained. I think it makes a little more sense that both my Lord and my God apply to Jesus And I don't think calling Jesus God necessitates the full-blown 4th century consubstantial, co-equal, co-eternal definition 
of what it means to be a person of God in a Trinitarian sense. Okay, and I, I think many of you who listen to the show know that there are lots of different ways that Jesus could be understood to be God that don't infringe on the supremacy of the Father, God Almighty, the sole creator of the heavens and the earth. And so I think it is a little bit strained, a little bit difficult to apply my Lord to Jesus and then my God to the Father in John 20, 28. I think it makes a little more sense to either go with a representational idea that because Jesus represents God, he can be called God, he can be called Lord, and he can be called God in the sense that he represents God, in the sense that Moses is called God, in the sense that the judges of Israel are called God, and even angels who also stand in and represent and give messages are called gods. Or it could refer to the discourse at the Last Supper where Philip and Thomas and so forth were there, and Jesus was trying to explain how God dwelt in him, and how both God and Christ would dwell in the believer via the Spirit after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. That after the ascension, there would be a descension, if I can put it that way, where Christ would dwell in his disciples and not leave them orphans. So it could be referring to that discourse uh, because that canonically, from the perspective of the Gospel of John, was the previous section of dialogue prior to the arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. So, But then there is also, as I kind of alluded to a minute ago, the idea that Jesus is a god because that's just what you call an immortalized human being. Uh, Someone who comes back from the dead and can pass through walls and is not able to die anymore, just is a god in the first century world, the Mediterranean world of the first century. That's just the word they would use to describe such a being. That does not mean that the being is not also a human being. And there is no conflict with this lowercase g sense of the word god and the humanity of Christ. You know, so you don't need a dual natures doctrine to explain it or anything elaborate like that. This is just a naming convention. The title God or the category of a God, lowercase g God, just applies to anyone that has defeated death and who lives in heaven. So I'm a little less prone to take that view just because I read Thomas as a person with a Jewish perspective. Uh, But these divisions are not so neat and clean as we would like. Uh, There's a lot of Hellenism around in Judea, in Galilee, in Samaria. And uh, so it's entirely possible that Thomas can be using some sort of Greco-Roman terminology to describe something that's unprecedented within uh, within Judaism. I also wanted to mention that uh, I've been hard at work on my Kingdom Journey book, which is forthcoming under contract with Wiffenstock, and we're trying to finalize the the indices, the cover, the endorsements. And I did want to just read out to you some of these endorsements. I'm actually really excited about the endorsements that I got in from this book. Many of you will know uh, Joe Martin. He was a professor at the Atlanta Bible College, then became the president of ABC during part of the time when I was teaching there. And uh, so he wrote, I greatly appreciate and recommend Sean Finnegan's book, Kingdom Journey, with a fantastic review of kingdom theology and church history from the church fathers to the Middle Ages, to Weiss and Schweitzer, to Ladd and Wright. The author tells of his journey concerning the kingdom. 
with a practical emphasis on family life, church leadership, mission work, and diligent study, Finnegan is an excellent guide through his life story, through his education, and through scripture to lead us into a clearer picture of the practical, real kingdom of God that Jesus and the prophets focused on. Keegan Chandler, uh, author of The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma, as well as Constantine and the Divine Mind, recently got his PhD from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Congratulations, Dr. Chandler. He wrote an endorsement for the uh, forthcoming book saying, A Captivating Quest for the Unsung Message of the Historical Jesus, A Gospel of Earthly Restoration Rather Than Heavenly Escape, and a clarion call for the rediscovery of its meaning for the Christian faith and life. Sean Finnegan's exploration of not only what was lost, but how it was lost and how to retrieve it marks a step forward in the earthly turn of Christian eschatology. Then I've got two more for you. James D. Tabor, uh, who was a professor of Christian origins at the University of North Carolina. You may know him uh, if you've done any work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He was one of the early scholars that worked with them. He also, interestingly enough, was a major advisor during the Waco crisis when the FBI was negotiating with David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. And uh, so he's kind of famous for that, too. Uh, He's done a lot of historical Jesus stuff as well. Anyhow, he said, I read Sean Finnegan's Kingdom Journey with keen anticipation, especially given the subtitle, A Call to Recover the Central Theme of Scripture. His work is one of the rare attempts to recover the very Jewish core of the message of the historical Jesus, indeed the gospel or good news of the kingdom of God. The simple phrase in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come, that is, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The concrete realization and manifestation of the kingdom or rule of God on earth is indeed the central theme of scripture. Sean Finnegan demonstrates that most clearly, covering all the issues in an exceptionally engaging but sharply analytical style. Indeed, this message has the potential to revive the gospel message in a way that can transform the world. Wow, he makes this sound better than I even thought (laughs) thought it was. And then last but not least, uh, J. Richard Middleton, Professor of Biblical Worldview and Exegesis at Northeastern Seminary. Uh, That's in Rochester, New York, not too far from me, a powerhouse in the field. He writes, in this intensely personal yet thoroughly researched book, Sean Finnegan invites us to join him on a journey of exploration to discover the authentic biblical vision of the kingdom of God and why it matters. Interweaving his own story with biblical exposition and historical investigation, Finnegan challenges the reader to embrace God's marvelous plan to transform this broken world into the new heavens and the new earth. So anyhow, I was just so excited about this project coming to fruition. I think it will be available in the spring sometime, so not available for any kind of holiday presents, if that's what you, what you were thinking. But uh, yeah, stay tuned for more about it. I'm really excited about it. Uh, I think these are really, really solid endorsements. I'm really, really thankful to Joe Martin, Keegan Chandler, James Tabor, and Uh, J. Richard Middleton, who really just went out of their way to read the book, uh, offer these thoughtful comments. Uh, None of them were paid. They were all just so gracious to do this, and I'm just really so overwhelmed and thankful 
that they're helping me to get my start as a published author. Uh, because let me tell you, it is not easy. It is a flooded market and publishers don't even really want to look at you unless you can prove you can sell so many thousands of books. And that's really hard when you haven't written one yet and you don't know who's going to buy it or what's even possible. So uh, stay tuned for more about the upcoming book. Obviously, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I do have a cover, but I don't think I can really share that yet. We're still tweaking it with the graphic designer, and uh, I'll let you know more about that as I'm able. But anyhow, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you want to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. See you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.